you could have. I thought it was interesting, and there's different lists, obviously. This is all according to the Internet, and so maybe what you think is the worst job might not be what's on the list. Number five was a corrections officer. This made the list, and they had some different factors that they looked at, both just the quality of the job you had, how much you made, and also um, whether or not you'd have a job in the next few years due to the decline and how many jobs would be available. Um, there was a decline in prison population leading to a decline in jobs in this field. There's also a high chance of injury and illness on the job, as you can imagine. Number four is a retail salesperson. This was one of the lowest paying jobs on the list. And while the minimum wage is increasing, so it's not as, I guess, low paying as it could be, um, you still have to deal with customers and you still have to deal with returns and all the different things that go into the retail business. That's why it's number four. Number three is a newspaper reporter. As you can imagine, due to the increase in technology, the paper newspaper reporting business is going downhill. It's also one of those jobs, as I was reading, where you face scrutiny and People will still write you and call you when they tell you when they think you haven't done a good job reporting or they don't like what different opinions you've given. Number two is a logger. This is due to how dangerous of a job they have. This was interesting to me. A couple years ago, there were 55 fatal in injuries in the logging industry and 350 non-fatal injuries. We also see many companies trying to automate this industry as well so there's less and less logging jobs but number one was a taxi driver due to the low paying nature of it and also the fact that you just have to drive that's your job you drive through the city different people um, it's a very high stressful job and an undesirable working environment we're going to look today at a job description for a certain office within the church known as the deacons now, there's some debate over this passage as to whether or not this is actually talking about deacons, mainly because the word deacon is not used. It's not going to actually call these men deacons. But there are three verbs used within Acts 6 that all have the root deacon or diakonos in them, because the word deacon means servant or to serve. And so what I'm going to suggest this morning is this, that we can't know for sure whether or not these were the first deacons but they're going to do the jobs that deacons do in the church or part of what a deacon would do and these are going to be the foundation even the pillars for this office becoming an official office in the church and i really think we see that clearly in this passage now in some churches the office of deacon is considered one of the most undesirable jobs that you could have like they would think it's on the list that i was listing for you earlier in other churches, it might be a very desired job. In fact, I've heard stories of church members who haven't even joined yet coming to the pastor and saying, hey, I'll join your church if you can make me a deacon or if I can serve as a deacon, trying to negotiate their way into the leadership of the church. But as we understand the office of a deacon and how we understand what deacons did in Acts and what they are to do in the church today— what I hope for us to see is that they're an integral part of the body of Christ, but they've also been misunderstood throughout even some of the history of the church. There are some churches where the deacons make 
all the decisions. In fact, a pastor friend of mine went to his church, candidated, was voted in, and then had a deacon tell him on the first day, you just preach and pray. We make all the decisions around here. This is our church. And there are other churches that you could go to where the deacons are just kind of the manual labor people, and they don't really have any say at all. And both those extremes aren't right. So what we want to understand today is what are deacons supposed to do within the life of the church? But honestly, most of us in this room, in fact, we don't have an official office of deacon here yet at our church. It's something we'd like to have, Lord willing, eventually in the future. And so how does this message apply to us? All of us should be serving in the church in some way. In fact, that's what the word deacon means, to be a servant. All of us have a spot, a place If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've even had a gift, a gifting from God that enables you to serve in the body of Christ in some way. And what I want us to see this morning as we look at this passage is that a thriving church needs members who faithfully serve to meet her needs. The point of my message is not just to be about deacons or to try to get everyone in this room to try and become a deacon. But the point of my message is this, is that we need members as a church who faithfully serve like these men did in order to help the church meet her needs. We've been looking at the book of Acts in the past several weeks, and we've seen attacks inside and outside of the church, right? There's been two different instances where persecution has started to plague the church, where the Jewish officials don't like what's going on in the body of Christ. And so they're starting to persecute the early church. And then in Acts 5, we saw Ananias and Sapphira, and they posed an internal threat to the church. Remember what they did? They lied about how much money they'd really sold their house for. And while they didn't have to give any of it to the church, they lied about it and said they really sold it and gave all the money to the church when, in fact, they kept some back. And they did this because they were selfish, because they were proud, and they wanted the glory for themselves. And Peter says, you are filled with Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not want to be told that by the Apostle Peter, that my heart is filled with Satan. And yet, what do we see the early church do? They confront sin. Not everyone who goes through church discipline is going to die. Thank the Lord for that. But we see the church confront sin, and it's actually blessed because of that. We see more people than ever before joining the body of Christ. And in last week's sermon, we saw again where the church is persecuted, and yet they remain faithful. They said, we'd rather serve God rather than men. And because of that, again, they're blessed and they consider it worthy to suffer for the body of Christ. Well, this morning we see some issues inside the church that, again, threaten the unity of the church. It threatens the um, ability and the functionality of the church to thrive under these circumstances. And like I said, we're going to see circumstances, even in the life of our church, As we grow, as we just continue to preach the gospel here, there will be times when there are things outside of our church that happen to us where we need to be faithful and we need God to help us through those things. There will be some times where there's things inside of our church as well. 
where we need God's word and we need God's blessing in order to help us to survive. And so like I said, a thriving church needs members who faithfully serve in order to meet her needs. So how can a church thrive in the midst of changing circumstances? Well, again, we'll see what the apostles did. Not everything the apostles did is exactly what we have to do, but I think they give us a good example of what we should do. So look with me at verses 1 and 2, and we'll see that a thriving church identifies needs. Identifies needs. Look with me at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We're going to see, as we look at this section, three different needs, issues that arise, not due to sin, like with Ananias and Sapphira, but just due to the nature and function of the church that are going to cause there to be issues in the church. The first one that we're going to see is an increase in number. Look with me in verse 1. It says, in these days, this is a summary statement again of the early church in Acts. The disciples were increasing in number. It's growing. And again, this is amazing to think about in the face of persecution, opposition from the Jewish people. These disciples are still growing Increasing in number. Now Luke uses this word disciple. And I believe, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I believe this is the first time he uses it in the book of Acts. It's used a lot in the Gospels. A disciple is a follower. They would be a lifelong follower of someone. We see the disciples in Acts. There were the twelve. There were others as well who followed Jesus Christ in his way of living. Now what's remarkable about there being disciples in Acts is that Jesus isn't physically there with them. So what does that tell us? Being a disciple happens even after Christ leaves. They still follow his example. They still follow him, even though he's seated in heaven with God at his right hand. They were still following Christ. It's a reminder to us, as I've said or tried to say in this series, Christ is building the church. The book of Acts is not about the apostles. The book of Acts is not about church buildings. It's not about Peter. It's not about John. The book of Acts is a book about Christ. It is a book about Christ building his church, even in the face of opposition. So what was the issue with a large number of disciples or Christians? Well, there were some administrative issues. If our church suddenly grew to be four or five times the number that we have here, There would be some administrative issues, you know. What if everybody didn't bring enough food to potluck? Like, what would we do to feed everyone? You know, I can't turn water into wine or two two loaves of bread and fish into more food. How would we feed everyone? These were questions that they actually had to answer. We're going to see that distribution was part of that as well. It was a good thing that the church was growing. But this increase in number led to some administrative and some even shepherding issues within the church. And this isn't really anybody's fault either. That's one of the things we'll see in Acts 6. There wasn't even really a sin issue at play here, but rather there needed to be more administration within the body of Christ. So we see the second issue. There's an increase in number, and this led to some neglected Greek widows. Look with me at the rest of verse 1. 
a complaint, so an issue, and this word is interesting, it actually means like a small, low-pitched murmur. Have you ever heard someone, somebody's talking, and they all of a sudden start kind of complaining about them or mocking them in like a low-pitched voice, you know? They start kind of grumbling in their seat. This is what was happening during this time. There was a complaint from the Hellenistic Jew, or the Hellenistic Christians. Now, who were the Hellenists? They were Greek widows. But this isn't exactly a racial issue. It's a little confusing for us to understand. Again, we didn't grow up during this time. So who were these people? Um, the Greek word hellas means um, Greek, actually. In fact, if you were back then, they would probably say that Greece was hellas. Um, it was a name for somebody who spoke Greek, but it wasn't just about who was speaking Greek and who was speaking Hebrew, even though that was one of the things that divided them. Paul, we know, spoke Greek, and he was from Tarsus, yet he refers to himself as a Hebrew. So this isn't exactly a racial divide, but rather this is a cultural divide. These Hellenistic Christians, they were Hellenistic Jews, now they've become Hellenistic Christians, they had a different culture than the Hebrew Christians. They had a different practice even. They lived like the Greek culture around them. They were Greek-speaking people. They lived like the Greek culture. We don't know if they were any less zealous for the law than the Hebrew Christians or the Hebrew Jews, but this was a certain group within the church, again, that I don't think is necessarily based on race, but based on culture and how they practiced. And what was the issue? Some of their widows were not being attended to. Now, we've seen in Acts, in Acts 4, in Acts 2, that the church was generous, right? The church gave generously. People sold their property in order to help others buy what they needed and help those who were in need. And who did they give all the money to? The apostles. They laid it at their feet. But what the problem is, when the church is growing and it's getting bigger and bigger, and it's not just addition, but it's actually multiplication, it is just swelling with growth. There's only 12 apostles, and now there are thousands of Christians. So I don't think this was a sin issue, but this was an oversight issue. This was an administrative issue. And there were Greek widows not being cared for. Now, how did they care for them? Well, the practice of caring for widows was actually something adopted from the Jewish practice as well. And this isn't just every woman who had lost her husband. Oftentimes, if you're a husband and you died, you would have in your will some provisions for your wife if you had the money to provide for that. Or your kids would take care of you as well. So this is only widows who didn't have the means from either their late husband or their kids to provide for them. Now, we don't know exactly what the Christian practice was. We do know that the Jewish practice was to leave them a basket every day that had some fruit, some bread, some different little clothing pieces, and then every week they would get a larger amount of meat, clothing, even money sometimes to help meet their needs. It was a pretty generous thing that the temple was giving to these women. The Christian church probably adopted something like this for 
those who were widows during this time. But we're not exactly sure. So like I said, there's an increase in number. This leads to some neglected Greek widows. And we're going to see the third issue. The third issue is, in verse 2, there are some overburdened apostles. There are some overburdened apostles. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. I want us to understand what they're saying here. They're not saying that it's not right for them to serve. And this happens to pastors sometimes. Sometimes pastors can think, I'm preaching God's word. I don't have time to do some of the more menial physical tasks of the church. That's not what the apostles are saying. They had been doing this. They had been helping others. Remember, the money had been given to them, and they were distributing these things to the widows. So what are they saying? What's happening is there are so many administrative tasks involved in this issue that the, that the apostles don't have time to preach and pray for the church. They are overburdened. To the point where they can't do any of it well. And so they're saying this is a stewardship issue. This is a service issue. And we cannot do both of these ministries effectively. And their ministry from God was to preach the word. So he's saying, they're saying it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to wait tables. Again, it's an issue of stewardship. That word not right means pleasing or desirable, but it's not talking about to them. They're willing to do anything for the body of Christ. It is not pleasing to God because God had given them this, this stewardship of preaching and teaching the word and of praying for the church, as we'll see in a little bit in this passage. So it's not that the apostles are better, that it's beneath them, but it's rather about their service. Now notice that word that they use, the ministry of the word. It means service. They were servants as well, servants of God. But they served the word to others. They taught God's word. They preached the gospel to others. And they were set apart for this reason. So when the administrative and physical needs of the church grew to be too much... They're saying, hey, we're overburdened. It's not right for us to try to do all of these things. It's sad, but sometimes within the life of the church, there can be ministries that overburden the body of Christ. I had a pastor a couple years ago. They did a huge upward basketball ministry. It was a great ministry at this church. But every Saturday, he would be there from 8 in the morning till 10 at night, doing everything from coaching to refing the concession stand, I and mean, he would be there at 10 at night sweeping popcorn on off the ground. And it's not that he was above that, but he was getting so burdened by the ministry. And it was a good ministry, but he also had to preach on Sunday. And he also had to care for people and teach the word to others. And I just saw him get worn down. And it reminds me even of this passage and again, the apostles, the apostles aren't exactly pastors. They're a distinct office within the church. We don't have apostles today. But elders, pastors, are charged with preaching the word of God. 
And it's not that we or I are beneath serving physically. In fact, I try to do that. But when the administrative needs grow to be so much that it takes away from their ministry of the word, then they need help. They need assistance. And so this is where we start seeing them identify needs. These are the problems. And none of them are directly sin issues, but there are oversight issues within the church. And even as we think about these issues, think about yourself. Do I see the needs within my church? Do I see areas within my church that need help, that I could help be part of? Not everyone is going to be able to see every need. And not every church is going to have the same ministries. There's churches that are bigger than ours, that are part of different ministries. There are churches that are about our size that choose to focus on different things. And none of those are bad things. Do I see needs within my local church and my community that we could be part of? And then secondly, and we'll keep talking about this, think about this. Have you identified your gifting? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has specially equipped you. I believe he's given you a spiritual gift to help you serve in the body of Christ. Now, some people do these spiritual gift um, surveys and they take these kind of, they're almost like a personality test to try to figure out what their spiritual gifts are. And I'm not saying those are wrong. If you've ever done those, you know, those are fine. But I think the best way to figure out what your spiritual gift is, is by serving in the body of Christ. What do I mean by that? Sometimes you don't realize what you're good at and what you're not good at until you've tried it in the body of Christ. There are sometimes God can use you in ways that you never would have thought possible until you started serving and helping out. My parents at my church in Danville um, were asked years ago when, when I was a child if they would teach junior high Sunday school. Now, no one likes junior hires unless you're just kind of an odd person like Keith. Okay, nobody really enjoys ministry with junior hires unless you're really cut out and gifted by God for that. And so at first they said no, but they prayed. And the pastor kept kind of asking them and they decided they would try it. And they ended up for years. They were my junior high Sunday school teacher. They taught most of my siblings. They taught that Sunday school class and they were used by God. And I'm not just saying this because they were my parents, but I had several people within the church Tell me, even kids, just how blessed they were by their ministry. And again, not because of any relation they have to me, but because they were willing to be used by God in whatever ministry they had. What gifting has God given you, and how can that help serve the body of Christ well? We see that they not only identify needs, but a church that thrives amidst changing circumstances will select qualified individuals to meet those needs. Look with me at verse 3. This is still the apostles talking. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good refute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the apostles' answer is to find men who can serve in this capacity. And again, this is really where we get this idea of deacons within the church. I'm not saying they called them deacons then, but I do think later this position turned into the office of deacon like we see it today. The idea of seven individuals, it doesn't have to be seven, but it comes from Deuteronomy 16, 18, where seven people would be in charge of 
um, administering a city. Now, again, it doesn't have to be seven. There's not a specific number. If it was seven people in our church, that'd be a pretty big part of our church, right? It'd almost be like there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And so it changes based on what your church needs are. But for them, they had seven people. And notice the apostles don't choose them themselves. And this, I think, is interesting. If you've talked to me at all about elder leadership, and again, elder, pastor, bishop, it's all the same word throughout Scripture. It's used interchangeably. So most of you will call me Pastor Lance or just Lance sometimes. But you can all, I'm also considered an elder. An elder, pastor, bishop, it's all the same office. It's just different roles within the pastoral office. But elders lead the church. They preach the word. They lead the church. But we also see that the congregation makes this decision as well. And this is a passage that tells us that the congregation does have a certain amount of authority. The apostles didn't choose these men, but the congregation nominated them and selected them themselves. And again, I just find this interesting. The apostles led them in this, but they did this themselves. Now notice that they had to meet certain qualifications. Find seven men of good refute, who had a good reputation within the church and outside the church. It's similar, and we'll look at 1 Timothy 3 in a moment. It's similar to the idea of being above reproach in 1 Timothy. People who have a good standing in the church, outside the church. Um, for elders, it's called being well thought of by outsiders. What do people think of these men? Well, they have to have a good reputation. Notice, secondly... They're to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. Being filled with the spirit is something we see in Acts a lot, right? People are filled with the spirit of God. It doesn't mean they're baptized with the spirit. That's something different. But the spirit is filling them and even working through them. And how are you filled with the spirit? You walk in the spirit. You're obedient. You follow God's word. These were godly men. These were godly men in the church who had a good reputation and who had a good character as well. Lastly, we see that they're filled with wisdom. This is practical wisdom. They were godly men, but they were also men who could make these practical decisions in the life of the church. Who knew how to handle these situations. Being a servant of God, being a deacon... Didn't, they weren't just going to hire anybody or they didn't hire them. They weren't just going to choose anyone or appoint anyone who is willing. And sometimes in the church, it can be hard to find people who are qualified and able to serve, especially if you don't have a lot of people who are willing to serve in that capacity. But notice that they had these different qualifications for these men. And the apostles gave them to them. We actually see more qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3. In fact, turn there with me just briefly. In 1 Timothy 3, we see qualifications for elders. We looked at a similar list back in the spring when we were preaching and working through Titus. Now we see in 1 Timothy 3, we see qualifications for overseers. And then starting in verse 8, Qualifications for deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, 
not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Notice verse 10, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives must likewise be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing children and their own households well. For those serving as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. There's a lot we could say about this passage, but I want us to see that there are qualifications for deacons, and they're similar to what we see for elders as well. Now, a big question that we have here in this list is, what is it talking about with wives? And there's some people within the church, and I don't think this is a separating issue like these people don't believe the gospel, but there are some within the church who think this is talking about female deacons, or they would call it a deaconess. And I can understand some of the reasons for thinking that, but I'm not quite convinced. And I'll say a little bit about that now. If you have more questions, I can talk to you about it after the service. A lot of it has to do with the word used. It means wives, or it could mean woman. But it seems to be a qualification even for deacons' wives, because then at the end of the section, it goes back to talking about deacons. Deacons managing their families and their household well. And so while elders' wives don't have qualifications, and there's some questions we could have about that, I think what it is talking about here in having qualifications for their wives, it was to show that they were good family men who had a good handle on their family. Their wives also met these qualifications as well. We see that they should be dignified. Again, the idea of being above reproach. There are other different character qualifications for deacons in this section as well. We see at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the section of verse 13, there's even a reward. For those, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This isn't a pride thing. This isn't about them flaunting their authority. But those who serve humbly, those who serve well, do a great service to the body of Christ. So we see here qualified deacons, both in Acts 6 and even in 1 Timothy 3. We secondly see devoted apostles. We see that qualified deacons actually lead to devoted apostles. Look with me at verse 4. They, in verse 3, pick out these deacons who meet these qualifications. But what would the apostles do? Are they just going to slack off and not do what they're supposed to? No, in verse 4 it says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And here I think, again, the apostles aren't exactly elders. It's a distinct office. But I think for pastors, this is a good job description. That they are to teach the word of God, and they're to pray for the congregation. Now, sometimes that teaching ministry is given a lot of emphasis, but there's not a lot of emphasis on prayer. Prayer is an important part of an elder's, a pastor's job within the church. It's something that even as I serve here, I find myself thinking that I need to pray more 
for the church. Now, some think this is just talking about leading in prayer. And again, I, I get asked a lot to pray at meals, especially in my family and things like that. It's not just talking about that, but a pastor who prays for their congregation spiritually. And what does that say? Nobody may ever know how much I would pray for my congregation in the week. But what does that say? That a pastor is dependent on God for the spiritual growth of their congregation. That God is the one who is really working through the church. And this pastor is trusting in God that their church people are changed and grown through the word of God. And that is convicting for me, even as a pastor, to think how many times do I pray for my church? How many times do I pray for their spiritual well-being and say, God, you're the one who has to work in their hearts and lives. It's not about me. It's about you. So they should be devoted to prayer and then to the ministry of the word, to teaching the word well. We lastly see an encouraged congregation. The deacons are qualified. They serve. The apostles are then able to be devoted to what they should be. And then in verse 5, it says, When what they said pleased the whole gathering. They liked it. It was good. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Two of these men we know a little bit about. Stephen is going to become very important in the immediately following chapter of Acts, right, as the first martyr in Acts. We see that he's a man full of faith. And we'll see that in the next chapter. He was full of faith in God. And he was willing to suffer for Christ. Philip, he is used to bring the gospel to Samaria. He's called Philip the Evangelist. <clears throat> the rest of the men, we don't really know anything about. But yet Luke includes their names. And why is this? All of their names have Greek roots or origins to them. And you might say, well, big deal. What is that talking about? They chose Greek or Hellenistic men to deal with the issues of the Hellenistic widows. We see something even about how they prioritized who would care for these people. They chose people who knew these widows, who had the same background, who had the same cultural ties to care for these widows. Now, again, this isn't a racial thing. But it was actually very wise what they did. They said, we're going to choose people who know them, who can care for them, better than maybe some of the Hebrew Jews could have. And so I just find that very interesting. All of them had Greek names. I think it was because they chose people who knew them and could serve them well. We see here that they selected qualified individuals to serve in the body of Christ well. We notice in verse 6, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. So they chose these men. These men were willing to serve. They came forward and they laid hands. Now this isn't an, impart an imparting of spiritual power, but rather this is a commissioning. It's almost like an ordination almost. Commissioning them for service. They often did this by laying hands on someone saying that they're set apart for this ministry. And so again, this brings up questions for 
us and for our church. Are you willing to serve however God would use you? Now, like I said earlier, the best way sometimes to figure out what your spiritual gift is, is to serve the church in a variety of different ways. And you might find out that you're better at some things. You might find out that you're not very good at other things. But are you willing to serve wherever God would have you serve? Also, think about this. Not everyone will be a deacon. Not everyone will be an elder. But do you look at those qualifications? And even like we talked about in Titus, are you trying to measure up to those? Not in a prideful way, but are you saying, I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to be qualified. So if I ever did have to serve my church in any of these ways, I could. Now, again, obviously not everyone is going to be serving in one of those roles. But we see that service is connected to character as well see a lot of pastors and i've heard different people talk about this people whose giftedness takes them farther than their character can keep them you want to know why there's so many pastors and christian leaders who have these big falls from ministry and you might think they're great preachers and they're great evangelists and they do all these great things and they're so gifted they didn't have good character they didn't have good character they couldn't measure up to the qualifications for those offices so it's a reminder for us as well to not only consider how best can i serve but also are we qualified to serve in these ways i lastly want us to see in verse seven a thriving church we've seen identifies needs in the congregation A thriving church selects individuals who are qualified to meet those needs. And finally, a thriving church trusts God with the results. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's three different words used for growth the first one is increased it has the idea of like your garden or fruit growing and multiplying being fruitful says the word of god is increasing god's word is able to be preached more effectively because the apostles are able to focus on that so we see god's word is preached and people are saved they're brought to the gospel we secondly see that there is an increase in the number of disciples People are growing, they're gathering, there's more disciples, even than ever before, that are being saved. And then lastly, just this little detail at the end of verse 7. And it says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests who were in the temple, who were in charge of even studying the word, focusing on the Bible, we see that many of them are now responding to the gospel. It's a beautiful thing to see God working through the church. And yet sometimes we as a church, and I see so many churches fall into this trap. They think we've identified needs and we've got people who are serving and we are working faithfully. We are working hard. But yet God, is he working in our church? Is Christ building our church? And what I want us to see is that the the apostles, the early church, They were devoted and faithful to God, knowing that Christ is the one who builds his church. 
There are many pastors who have pastored the same small church for years, faithfully serving. And that church may never grow to be a mega church. They may never write books. They may never speak at conferences. But yet, I think they understand something about what real ministry is. And it's not that God doesn't want to see increase. But it's that they're faithfully serving in those areas where the gospel is still needed. Do you trust God with the results? So many people are so quick to say, okay, we're not seeing anything happen here. So we need to move on. We need to change things up. We need to be more like the culture. We need to adopt these different practices. We need to read this book on how to have a great church. No, do you trust God and say, we're faithful to God's word. We see the needs. We've had people meeting those needs. And whatever happens, God is in control of what happens in our church. I think this was the mindset of the early church. And we see that they thrive. And the gospel grows more than ever before. We can trust, like we talked about last week, God's sovereignty. And sometimes God's sovereignty, like I said, leads us to persecution and suffering. And other times God's sovereignty, his providence, it leads us sometimes to serve in ways where we don't get all the credit. Some of the people who have blessed the church the most, some of the people in our church who bless the most, do things and serve in ways that may not be seen by everyone. But yet God still works in them and we still need those faithful servants. I think of all those pastors, all those people who were evangelists. You hear those stories about how they were led to the Lord by their Sunday school teacher, how they were led to the Lord by their grandma, how they were led to the Lord by people who you may not ever know their names. And yet God worked through their ministry. So how can I serve my local church well? How can you think about serving here? Again, the point is not that everyone becomes a deacon. But that, first of all, we would stay involved. Stay involved. See the needs in your church. Be faithful to coming to gatherings, fellowshipping with your church. And even in our church, as I think about how we are unique... It may not just be serving on Sundays and Wednesdays and throughout the week at official services, but how can you serve a church member? How can you encourage someone in the church? Who can you call up that you never talked to at all and just say, I've been praying for you. I heard your request during prayer time. I wanted to pray for you and follow up in that way. Secondly, volunteer to meet needs. Ask how you can help, not just our church. Ask others how you can be a blessing to them. See how you can be involved in our church, in the lives of the believers here. And then lastly, as I've been saying, depend on the Lord. Are you dependent on God for his increase, his growth, his providence? We know that he will be faithful to complete the work that he is doing in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we've gotten to gather together and study your word as a congregation. We thank you, Lord, for these servants who were willing to serve you in the church, many of whom we don't hear anything else about in Scripture. 
And yet they were faithful. They were faithful to serve you. God, help us to be faithful as we serve the body of Christ. In Christ's name, amen.